Section 24 of Volume 1b of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1b, Section 24, Chapter 15, Part 4. While the French and English armies lay in this situation, and a general action was every day expected, Jane, Countess Dowager of Hainault, interposed with her good offices and endeavoured to conciliate peace between the contending monarchs, and to prevent any further effusion of blood. This princess was mother-in-law to Edward and sister to Philip, and though she had taken the vows in a convent and had renounced the world, she left her retreat on this occasion and employed all her pious efforts to allay those animosities which had taken place between persons so nearly related to her and to each other. As Philip had no material claims on his antagonist, she found that he hearkened willingly to the proposals, and even the haughty and ambitious Edward, convinced of his fruitless attempt, was not averse to her negotiation. He was sensible from experience that he had engaged in an enterprise which far exceeded his force, and that the power of England was never likely to prevail over that of a superior kingdom, firmly united under an able and prudent monarch. He discovered that all the allies whom he could gain by negotiation were at bottom averse to his enterprise, and though they might second it to a certain length, would immediately detach themselves and oppose its final accomplishment if ever they could be brought to think that there was seriously any danger of it. He even saw that their chief purpose was to obtain money from him and as his supplies from England came in very slowly, and had much disappointed his expectations, he perceived their growing indifference in his cause, and their desire of embracing all possible terms of accommodation. Convinced at last that an undertaking must be imprudent which could only be supported by means so unequal to the end, he concluded a truce which left both parties in possession of their present acquisitions, and stopped all further hostilities on the side of the Low Countries, Guyenne and Scotland, till midsummer next. A negotiation was soon after opened at Arras, under the mediation of the Pope's legates, and the truce was attempted to be converted into a solid peace. Edward here required that Philip should free Guyenne from all claims of superiority, and entirely withdraw his protection from Scotland. But as he seemed not anywise entitled to make such high demands, either from his past successes or future prospects, they were totally rejected by Philip, who agreed only to a prolongation of the truce. The King of France soon after detached the Emperor Louis from the alliance of England, and engaged him to revoke the title of imperial vicar, which he had conferred on Edward. 
the king's other allies on the frontiers of france disappointed in their hopes gradually withdrew from the confederacy and edward himself harassed by his numerous and importunate creditors was obliged to make his escape by stealth into england the unusual tax of a ninth sheaf lamb and fleece imposed by parliament together with the great want of money and still more of credit in england had rendered the remittances to flanders extremely backward nor could it be expected that any expeditious method of collecting an imposition which was so new in itself and which yielded only a gradual produce could possibly be contrived by the king or his ministers and though the parliament foreseeing the inconvenience had granted as a present resource twenty thousand sacks of wool the only english goods that bore a sure price in foreign markets and were the next to ready money it was impossible but the getting possession of such a bulky commodity the gathering of it from different parts of the kingdom and the disposing of it abroad must take up more time than the urgency of the king's affairs would permit and must occasion all the disappointments complained of during the course of the campaign but though nothing happened which edward might not reasonably have foreseen he was so irritated with the unfortunate issue of his military operations and so much vexed and affronted by his foreign creditors that he was determined to throw the blame somewhere off himself and he came in a very bad humour into england he discovered his peevish disposition by the first act which he performed after his arrival as he landed unexpectedly he found the tower negligently guarded and he immediately committed to prison the constable and all others who had charge of that fortress and he treated them with unusual vigour his vengeance fell next on the officers of the revenue the sheriffs the collectors of the taxes the undertakers of all kinds and besides dismissing all of them from their employments he appointed commissioners to inquire into their conduct and these men in order to gratify the king's humour were sure not to find any person innocent who came before them sir john st paul keeper of the privy seal sir john stonor chief justice andrew aubrey mayor of london were displaced and imprisoned as were also the bishop of chichester chancellor and the bishop of lichfield treasurer stratford archbishop of canterbury to whom the charge of collecting the new taxes had been chiefly entrusted fell likewise under the king's displeasure but being absent at the time of edward's arrival he escaped feeling the immediate effects of it there were strong reasons which might discourage the kings of england in those ages from bestowing the chief offices of the crown on prelates and other ecclesiastical persons these men had so entrenched themselves in privileges and immunities and so openly challenged an exemption from all secular jurisdiction that no civil penalty could be inflicted on them for any malversation in office and as even treason itself was declared to be no canonical offence 
nor was allowed to be a sufficient reason for deprivation or other spiritual censures that order of men had ensured to themselves an almost total impunity and were not bound by any political law or statute but on the other hand there were many peculiar causes which favoured their promotion besides that they possessed almost all the learning of the age and were best qualified for civil employments the prelates enjoyed equal dignity with the greatest barons and gave weight by their personal authority to the powers entrusted with them while at the same time they did not endanger the crown by accumulating wealth or influence in their families and were restrained by the decency of their character from that open rapine and violence so often practised by the nobles these motives had induced edward as well as many of his predecessors to entrust the chief department of government in the hands of ecclesiastics at the hazard of seeing them disown his authority as soon as it was turned against them this was the case with archbishop stratford that prelate informed of edward's indignation against him prepared himself for the storm and not content with standing upon the defensive he resolved by beginning the attack to show the king that he knew the privileges of his character and had courage to maintain them he issued a general sentence of excommunication against all who on any pretext exercised violence on the person or goods of clergymen who infringed those privileges secured by the great charter and by ecclesiastical canons or who accused a prelate of treason or any other crime in order to bring him under the king's displeasure even edward had reason to think himself struck at by this sentence both on account of the imprisonment of the two bishops and that of other clergymen concerned in levying the taxes and on account of his seizing their lands and movables that he might make them answerable for any balance which remained in their hands the clergy with the primate at their head were now formed into a regular combination against the king and many calumnies were spread against him in order to deprive him of the confidence and affections of his people it was pretended that he meant to recall the general pardon and the remission which he had granted of old debts and to impose new and arbitrary taxes without consent of parliament the archbishop went so far in a letter to the king himself as to tell him that there were two powers by which the world was governed the holy pontifical apostolic dignity and the royal subordinate authority that of these two powers the clerical was evidently the supreme since the priests were to answer at the tribunal of the divine judgment for the conduct of kings themselves that the clergy were the spiritual fathers of all the faithful and amongst others of kings and princes and were entitled by a heavenly charter to direct their wills and actions and to censure their transgressions and that prelates had hitherto cited emperors before their tribunal had sitten in judgment on their life and behaviour and had anathematized them for their obstinate offences 
these topics were not well calculated to appease edward's indignation and when he called a parliament he sent not to the primate as to the other peers a summons to attend it stratford was not discouraged at this mark of neglect or anger he appeared before the gates arrayed in his pontifical robes holding the crozier in his hand and accompanied by a pompous train of priests and prelates and he required admittance as the first and highest peer in the realm during two days the king rejected his application but sensible either that this affair might be attended with dangerous consequences or that in his impatience he had groundlessly accused the primate of malversation in his office which seems really to have been the case he at last permitted him to take his seat and was reconciled to him edward now found himself in a bad situation both with his own people and with foreign states and it required all his genius and capacity to extricate himself from such multiplied difficulties and embarrassments his unjust and exorbitant claims on france and scotland had engaged him in an implacable war with those two kingdoms his nearest neighbours he had lost almost all his foreign appliances by his irregular payments he was deeply involved in debts for which he owed a consuming interest his military operations had vanished into smoke and except his naval victory none of them had been attended even with glory or renown either to himself or to the nation the animosity between him and the clergy was open and declared the people were discontented on account of many arbitrary measures in which he had been engaged and what was more dangerous the nobility taking advantage of his present necessities were determined to retrench his power and by encroaching on the ancient prerogatives of the crown to acquire to themselves independence and authority but the aspiring genius of edward which had so far transported him beyond the bounds of discretion proved at last sufficient to reinstate him in his former authority and finally to render his reign the most triumphant that is to be met with in english story though for the present he was obliged with some loss of honour to yield to the current which bore so strongly against him the parliament framed an act which was likely to produce considerable innovations in the government they promised that whereas the great charter had to the manifest peril and slander of the king and damage of his people been violated in many points particularly by the imprisonment of freemen and the seizure of their goods without suit indictment or trial it was necessary to confirm it anew and to oblige all the chief officers of the law together with the steward and chamberlain of the household the keeper of the privy seal the controller and treasurer of the wardrobe and those who were entrusted with the education of the young prince to swear to the regular observance of it they also remarked that the peers of the realm had formerly been arrested and imprisoned and dispossessed of their temporalities and lands and even some of them put to death without judgment or trial and they therefore enacted that such violences should henceforth cease 
and no peer be punished but by the award of his peers in parliament they required that whenever any of the great offices above mentioned became vacant the king should fill it by the advice of his council and the consent of such barons as should at that time be found to reside in the neighbourhood of the court and they enacted that on the third day of every session the king should resume into his own hand all these offices except those of justices of the two benches and the barons of exchequer that the ministers should for the time be reduced to private persons that they should in that condition answer before parliament to any accusation brought against them and if they were found anywise guilty they should finally be dispossessed of their offices and more able persons be substituted in their place by these last regulations the baron approached as near as they durst to those restrictions which had formerly been imposed on henry the third and edward the second and which from the dangerous consequences attending them had become so generally odious that they did not expect to have either the concurrence of the people in demanding them or the assent of the present king in granting them in return for these important concessions the parliament offered the king a grant of twenty thousand sacks of wool and his wants were so urgent from the clamours of his creditors and the demands of his foreign allies that he was obliged to accept of the supply on these hard conditions he ratified this statute in full parliament but he secretly entered a protest of such a nature as was sufficient one should imagine to destroy all future trust and confidence with his people he declared that as soon as his convenience permitted he would from his own authority revoke what had been extorted from him accordingly he was no sooner possessed of the parliamentary supply than he issued an edict which contains many extraordinary positions and pretensions he first asserts that some statute had been enacted contrary to law as if a free legislative body could ever do anything illegal he next affirms that it was hurtful to the prerogatives of the crown which he had sworn to defend he had only dissembled when he seemed to ratify it but that he had never in his own breast given his assent to it he does not pretend that either he or the parliament lay under force but only that some inconvenience would have ensued had he not seemingly affixed his sanction to that pretended statute he therefore with the advice of his council and of some earls and barons abrogates and annuls it and though he professes himself willing and determined to observe such articles as if it were formerly law he declares it to have thenceforth no force or authority the parliaments that were afterwards assembled took no notice of this arbitrary exertion of royal power which by a parity of reason left all their laws at the mercy of the king and during the course of two years edward had so far re-established his influence and freed himself from his present necessities that he had obtained from his parliament a legal repeal of the obnoxious statute 
this transaction certainly contains remarkable circumstances which discover the manners and sentiments of the age and may prove what inaccurate work might be expected from such rude hands when employed in legislation and in rearing the delicate fabric of laws and a constitution but though edward had happily recovered his authority at home which had been impaired by the events of the french war he had undergone so many mortifications from that attempt john the third duke of brittany had during some years found himself declining through age and infirmities and having no issue he was solicitous to prevent those disorders to which on the event of his demise a disputed succession might expose his subjects his younger brother the count of pentheve had left only one daughter whom the duke deemed his heir and as his family had inherited the duchy by a female succession he thought her title preferable to that of the count of montfort who being his brother by a second marriage was the male heir of that principality he accordingly purposed to bestow his niece in marriage on some person who might be able to defend her rights and he cast his eye on charles of blois nephew of the king of france by his mother margaret of valois sister to that monarch but as he both loved his subjects and was beloved by them he determined not to take this important step without their approbation and having assembled the states of brittany he represented to them the advantages of that alliance and the prospect which it gave of an entire settlement of the succession the bretons willingly concurred in his choice the marriage was concluded all his vassals and among the rest the count of montfort swore fealty to charles and his consort as to their future sovereigns and every danger of civil commotions seemed to be obviated as far as human prudence could provide a remedy against them but on the death of this good prince the ambition of the count of montfort broke through all these regulations and kindled a war not only dangerous to brittany but to a great part of europe while charles of blois was soliciting at the court of france the investiture of the duchy montfort was active in acquiring immediate possession of it and by force or intrigue he made himself master of rennes nantes brest hennebon and all the most important fortresses and engaged many considerable barons to acknowledge his authority sensible that he could expect no favour from philip he made a voyage to england on pretence of soliciting his claim to the earldom of richmond which had devolved to him by his brother's death and there offering to do homage to edward as king of france for the duchy of brittany he proposed a strict alliance for the support of their mutual pretensions edward saw immediately the advantages attending this treaty mountfort an active and valiant prince closely united to him by interest opened at once an entrance into the heart of france and afforded him much more flattering views than his allies on the side of germany and the low countries 
who had no sincere attachment to his cause, and whose progress was also obstructed by those numerous fortifications which had been raised on that border. Robert of Artois was zealous in enforcing these considerations. The ambitious spirit of Edward was little disposed to sit down under those repulses which he had received, and which he thought had so much impaired his reputation, and it required a very short negotiation to conclude a treaty of alliance between the two men, who, though their pleas with regard to the preference of male or female succession were directly opposite, were intimately connected by their immediate interests. As this treaty was still a secret, Mountfort, on his return, ventured to appear at Paris, in order to defend his cause before the court of peers. But observing Philip and his judges to be prepossessed against his title, and dreading their intentions of arresting him till he should restore what he had seized by violence, he suddenly made his escape, and war immediately commenced between him and Charles of Blois. Philip sent his eldest son, the Duke of Normandy, with a powerful army to the assistance of the latter, and Mountfort, unable to keep the field against his rival, remained in the city of Nantes, where he was besieged. The city was taken by the treachery of the inhabitants. Mountfort fell into the hands of his enemies, was conducted as a prisoner to Paris, and was shut up in the Tower of the Louvre. End of section 24, chapter 15, part 4.